Um, today we are into part two of our series, Dissatisfied, Practices for Pursuing Satisfaction in Jesus. And if we haven't met before, my name is Grant. Um, if you haven't been around for a few weeks, you might be like, I don't remember that guy. Like, what's, what's the story? Where's he from? Uh, my wife and daughter and I, we've just moved here from the east coast of South Africa, a city called Durban. So we are settling in. If you are new, we are new too. So we're in the same boat, which is a good thing. But we're enjoying settling into San Diego and just really enjoying settling into this church community. We've joined the pastoral team here, so enjoying getting to know everyone. And then it's really awkward when you try and sneak out to what we would call the loo. Maybe you would call the restroom, just as Andy's finishing announcements, and then you get called out. So if you noticed that, that was a very special moment for me today. Yeah, there we go. Um, but just I thought I'd give you like one little bit of just personal news about us. We, we left South Africa on the 1st of March. So it's been a few months now since we left. Real like treat to have Shell's mom here at the moment with us, just spending time here with us, getting to know this church and this city. It's been very special. But we left South Africa on the 1st of, month, uh, the 1st of March. And I think we've lost track of how many places we've stayed, how many beds we've slept in. If you don't know, we took about a three-month sabbatical uh, after we handed over the church and as we were kind of settling into life here. And that was really, really fun. But it was also kind of surreal because we had had our daughter about two weeks before the COVID lockdown struck Durban. She was born on the 26th of February, 2020. She spent a week in hospital, and then two weeks later, our country went into lockdown. So she was a lockdown baby. The first two years of her life, a lot of that time was spent with Shell and myself in our home together. And then after that, she spent, she's the last while, 10 flights, five countries, five time zones, and we've lost track of how many beds and places we've stayed. It's been just wild. It's been really exciting, but also just like really unsettling, being all over the place for the last while. And I think for us now, we're in this place as we settle in San Diego, where we're resetting our lives. You know, it's been really fun going to all these places and seeing family and traveling a bit and uh, just resting and making family like memories and moments and praying and playing and all of that. But now we're starting to put down roots here and we've got to reset some of our family rhythms and routines and the way we want our lives to actually look normal life together. And the reason I bring that up is because I think for a lot of us, the last few years have done that to us. They've been pretty disruptive. Um, there's been a lot of change, a lot going on. And I think because of that, it means we're in a place where we need to reset some of our rhythms and routines, like personally, as a family, as a church, as groups of people. Actually, we've lost some of the things that were set in our lives that were so good and so healthy. Maybe things that took us a long time to build up. And over the disruption of the last few years, actually, we've lost some of those things and picked up some unhealthy habits that maybe are even bad for us or bad for our relationship with Jesus or bad for us as a church community. So really, that's the heart of what the series we're in is all about. It's about resetting and reestablishing some of those habits in our lives. And last week, what we did is we looked at our first practice for the series, and it was a really simple one, turn your eyes upon Jesus. I mean, it's pretty simple, but it's really, really important and foundational to what we're talking about. And we talked about seeing him or seeing him again for some of us. And the language of John 6, the passage we were in, was about eating the bread of life as opposed to eating the breads that this world has to offer, because there's a lot of breads out there that we can eat and enjoy and try and be satisfied with. And we said last week that the truth we wanted to believe is that Jesus is enough and that Jesus satisfies. 
And those are also big concepts that I hope that you would leave here with today. Because really the truth I want you to leave with today is the same. That Jesus is enough and that Jesus satisfies. But I want to change our practice for today a little bit. So last week we said we want to turn our eyes on Jesus. Today we want to talk about how we keep our eyes on Him. How we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Because as we all know, there's many distractions in this life. I, um, I finished up John Dennett's book this week. It's called Helping People Grow. And there was, I mean, one or two shout outs, maybe a third woo from the crowd. John wrote a pretty good gr- uh, book. If you don't know, John's sitting in the fourth row right on the aisle here. Um, he's selling books after the service. You can grab them from his car. Yeah, yeah. Um, he'll sign, he actually did sign my book, which was really cool. Yeah. I asked him to. He didn't offer. That would have been a weird thing, but I asked him to sign my book. But okay, yeah. Sorry, Mia. I'm sorry I didn't like that. But um, I was reading his book, and there was this line near the end that really stood out to me. As John said, life is loud, and, sorry, I've lost it. Life is fast, and life is loud. Life is fast, and life is loud. And I think that's so true. Life is fast. There's a lot of stuff coming at us all the time that we've got to deal with. Because of that, I think a lot of us are feeling tired. And life is loud. There's a lot of things that are filling our attention, and filling our minds, and filling our hearts, and a lot of messages coming at us all of the time. And it can be a bit overwhelming can take a lot out of us. And when I was thinking about this, the distraction that comes at us all the time, uh, I remember just this moment back in Durban, uh, pretty close to our house, there's a big road called Argyle Road. And it has blown my mind being on the freeways here and there being five or six or sometimes seven lanes on one side of the freeway. That's wild to me. But I was going down a pretty big road in Durban and I got to this intersection. So I was stopped at the red light. And I was like going somewhere. I had a meeting to go to and I was listening to a sermon. So that's what I was focused on. That's what I was doing. Going to this meeting, going there, listening to the message, paying attention to that. But as I got stuck at the red light, I just noticed all of the messages coming at me from all over. Um, Our our economy back in Durban is pretty rough. There's high unemployment. So there were a bunch of people around me on the road with signs up just sharing their need and their story. Just people begging or asking for money. And then there's also a lot of people who have like informal work, you know, selling things on the side of the road. So there must have been about five people who came up to my window trying to sell me a soda, a set of glasses, um, a cell phone cover, fuzzy dice, I don't know, whatever else it was, you know, just things you might want when you're stopped at the lights. And on top of that, there were two huge billboards, one to the left and one to the right, colorful, bright, big font, trying to advertise things, events or products or whatever it is. And then on top of that, there were a lot of small posters on these lamp posts or, or traffic lights, also advertising things, communicating messages. And then on top of that, there's a lot of stores along that road with their big signs and their discounts and their savings and their deals that they're offering. And then on top of that, there's graffiti and stickers and just all of these things. I was sitting there just trying to count how many messages were coming at me at one time. And every single one of those messages wants something from me. They all want my attention. They all want a response from me. They're all trying to pull me in different directions. I'm just trying to go to this meeting and trying to listen to the sermon. And I'm bombarded with like 35 messages that want my attention, that want my focus. And I say that because I think so much of our lives are like that. We we know what we're trying to focus on. We know the thing that we're trying to do, when we remember it at least. But while we're trying to go where we're going and do what we're wanting to do, We have 35 messages coming at us, pulling us in these different directions. And how often do they win? How often do they steal our attention or focus or get us to go a different direction 
or actually take our mind off the sermon we're trying to listen to, to listen to something else, or turn down the wrong road, or make a different choice. How often does that happen? That's why I said last week that we can't just turn our eyes on Jesus once and we're good. I wish that's how it worked, you know? I made an initial response to Jesus when I was 12. I think I started to follow him truly when I was about 18. I wish there'd been a moment there where I just said, cool, I'm focused on Jesus now and I'm good for the rest of my life. That would be amazing. But the reality is, is this isn't just a one-off thing and it's not even a daily thing. Where in the morning, this would be so great. The morning we just get up, we're like, Jesus, I'm resetting my focus on you and we're good for the day. Because as we get into the car, as we get to work, as we get around different people, all of these messages come at us and pull our attention and pull our focus in different directions. And how often do we turn to those other things and find ourselves throughout the day needing to say, okay, I want to reset. I want to refocus. I want to be aware of Jesus in this moment that I'm going through. So turning our attention on Jesus isn't a once-off thing. It's not a daily thing. It's got to be something that goes on in our lives again and again throughout each day. So with that in mind, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Philippians 3 with me. The scriptures are going to come up on the screen, I think. We're all good. Um, But today, really, what I want to do is talk about that, how we keep our focus on Jesus and how we build the kind of life that is constantly aware of Him and focused on Him and positioned to be satisfied by Him. So this is Philippians 3, verse 7 to 15. Paul the Apostle writes and says, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. And this is the truth that we spoke about last week and again this week. Paul says like he's willing to lose everything else to gain Christ because Jesus is enough and Jesus satisfies. Verse 8. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. It's like really strong language he's trying to use there. He calls everything else dung, rubbish, not in itself, but compared to Jesus. Jesus is far greater. He's of surpassing worth than anything else. And Paul writes and says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. That encourages me so much in a message like this. We make every effort to take hold of Jesus. Why? Because he's already taken hold of us. He initiated this. He started this. He put in the effort, and now we put in the effort to take hold of him too. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. So last week in John chapter 6, as we started the series, I said that we see that the life we're looking for is not a thing, and that it's not an idea, and it's not something we achieve, and it's not something we work for or earn or own. 
the thing that we're looking for is a person and his name is Jesus. That was the big idea last week. And Philippians 3, this week, we see that Paul is casting a vision for a very similar thing. He's casting a vision for what a life satisfied in Jesus looks like. And Paul has this amazing maths. I know we got some mathematicians, analysts, smart people in the room. Paul says very simply that his maths goes like this. If I have everything that you could want in life, but I don't have Jesus, really I have nothing. But if I have Jesus and nothing else, then I have everything that I need to be satisfied. If maybe you did like maths wasn't your specialty, I'll just say that again. If I have everything the world could offer, everything that I desire, but I don't have Jesus, then I'm lacking. I have nothing really. But if I have Jesus and everything else is taken from me, that's okay because I have everything I need. He satisfies. To Paul, it's not even a competition. It just doesn't compete. Like there's no competition. It doesn't compare at all. Jesus is everything. And as we read through this passage in Philippians 3, what I really love is that Paul doesn't sound like this apostle laying down theology in the church and teaching them the truth. He is doing that, obviously. That's why we're in the passage. But he almost sounds like a man that is in love as we read this passage. It's a really, really beautiful thing. Paul is in love with Jesus. His worship for Jesus comes out like someone who's passionately in love. And I'm sure every one of us in this room have either experienced something of falling in love or we've seen it happen in someone else. When the love goggles go on and they change. Annie knows what I mean. Um, have you seen it before where you just get annoyed with someone else? Like the love goggles go on and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, have you noticed what's going on with so-and-so? Because you change. If the love goggles go on, you act differently. You talk differently. You respond differently. You make decisions differently because love has come upon you. You know, you're seeing everything in a different light because of these goggles. Love is a powerful thing. And I remember like a few stories with my wife when we were dating. Um, we've been married 10 years as of May, but like have known each other for over 12 now. And this one moment came up, like I remember distinctly having dinner with Shell and her mom and family in Durban. We're at this great Italian restaurant called Spigger that I think some of you in the room have been to before. Andy's been there. I thought maybe there were a few more. It's great. Decent pizza. Royce has been there. It's pretty good. Jake's been there. Okay, we're crushing it. But um, <laughs> anyone else? Any takers? I've got three. Can I see a fourth? Um, but we were there like years ago before we got married. And I remember at the end of the night, Shell was going to go home with her parents. She was staying with them. She was a student at the time. I was working. And I just said, Shell, let me take you home. It was 35 minutes away, you know. I was going to have to take her to the same place her parents were going to and then come all the way back. 70 minutes of driving. It was like a work night. Like, I, I'm an efficiency guy. I think Andy's probably going to laugh about this while I'm talking about it. But, you know, this doesn't make sense. Like, she was going home with her parents to where she lived. But I wanted to drive her there. Even though it would cost, gas is really expensive right now. Like, it was going to cost a bunch of money with gas. It would waste a bunch of time. I would be tired, all of those things. But just for an extra 30 minutes with her, I would do that. We spent the whole night together. But just for an extra 30 minutes of her, I'd be inconvenienced, I'd be inefficient. It didn't make sense, but it was amazing just to get more time with her because I loved her and I wanted that time with her. Most of you guys just are like, that doesn't make sense, Grant. You're like way too harsh. Like it's 30 minutes, just calm down, it's fine. But I remember like just, I, I would, when those love goggles came on, I would do anything for extra time with her. 
I was working at the time. She was studying. She had a more flexible schedule than I did. I was tired for two years because every night we would hang out till 10, 11, 12 later. I wanted just a little bit more time with her. So I'd go to bed late. I'd wake up early just because it was worth it to be exhausted for two years, to be tired throughout the day, just to get that time with her. And in Philippians 3, we see Paul is like that. He's a man that's in love with Jesus and he's all in. And Paul is saying here, I will do anything that I may know Jesus, that I may gain Christ, that I might become like him. That is his focus. That's what he wants. He'll give up anything and everything for Jesus. But Paul also writes here that this way of thinking, which to some of us maybe seems a bit extreme. We're like, whoa, okay, Paul's like a super Christian. You know, he wrote scripture. He's a big deal. We read this and we might go, that's like an outlier thing. That's an unusual thing. That's a radical Christian response. But at the end of this passage in Philippians 3 verse 15, Paul says, let all of us who are mature think this way. That's wild. He's saying mature Christianity looks like this view of Jesus and this choosing of Jesus. I'll give up everything that I may gain him. So some questions I wanted to ask you before we go forward. Do you think like Paul thinks? Do you have the same desire for Jesus and the same focus as Paul? Does your life maths work the same as Paul's? That if I have Jesus, I have everything, but without him, actually I have nothing. Would you give up everything else if you could have him? Are you mature in the way that Paul defines Christian maturity? Because this love poem of Paul's I think it's one of the reasons that we see that marriage and like spiritual relationship with God is just such a good kind of link or metaphor for one another. And the reality is for us that if we want to cultivate a relationship with God that is healthy and beautiful and like what Paul's describing here, it requires time and it requires effort. Let me just say that again. If we want to cultivate a relationship with God or with anyone for that matter, it's going to require time and it's going to require effort on our parts. And our relationship with God is like a relationship with a spouse. Once you're married, you can't be any more married than you are already. Even if you try really hard, you're married, you know. You are married. If you do well one day, you're still married. You know, if you do badly one day, it doesn't change the status of your marriage. You are married. You don't have to put in effort to be married. You just are married. It's not something that you do. It's something that you are. But you do need to put in effort to be in a good marriage. Romance is all about effort, thoughtfulness, generosity, sacrifice, kindness. Because if after you said I do, you never put in any effort or any work into your marriage or any relationship for that matter, again, it might not change the status of your marriage, but it would definitely change the quality. And it's similar with our relationship with Jesus. When we know him, we are saved. We're Christian. We can't do anything to be more saved. We can't do anything to be more of a Christian. You can't do anything to be more of a follower of Jesus. You just are. You're in Christ. But what we're talking about in the series is that certain spiritual practices or disciplines or habits or whatever you want to say do increase the quality and depth and intimacy of our relationship with God. Which means that once we begin to follow Jesus, once we're saved, once we're a Christian, we can either have a good or a bad relationship with God based on what we do. Let me use Shell and I as an example again, and we'll go a little bit deeper into this illustration. As I said, Shell's been my best friend for like 12 years, most of the time. 
been married for 10 years, and our relationship has been built slowly, like over time, with a whole bunch of different things that we put in place to build the relationship that we've got. So for example, some of the things that we've put in place to build that relationship, we try and hold hands a lot when we walk around. We're actually holding hands during worship, which was like a really nice thing. I make chill tea every morning in bed. Um, she loves tea. I know this is more of a coffee culture. She's got the English roots. I've got the English roots. But that's something that we love. We both love tea, so it's a way I can serve her and love her. We say I love you daily as, as often as I think we can. We serve one another through different roles and chores. They might not look the same, but in different ways we're serving one another. For 10 years, for us, Monday was our day off. Um, and it was really great. After like a busy Sunday, a draining Sunday, Monday morning we would generally go somewhere for breakfast. And we would go there together. Often it was a new place because Shell loves variety. I love variety. We love going to a new place. So that was one of the practices. Let's find a new place, a different place. Let's check that out. And let's grab a coffee there, have some breakfast, and be in each other's presence. Just spend FaceTime together, talk to one another, catch up if we've like missed each other in the week, and just be satisfied with one another in that time. One of the things we've tried to do is to study each other. Um, to know the way each other work and what we like and dislike. I know probably a lot of you in this room have heard of the love languages stuff. Shell's a gifts person, which doesn't mean she's materialistic or consumeristic. See a few of you going, I'm a gifts person too. <laughs> it doesn't mean Shell needs me to buy her these big things, but it means that if I go to a grocery store and I bring her back something small that she likes, that's a big deal for her. It's not for me. She's done that with me before and I take zero notice of it because it doesn't <laughs> matter. For her, she's had to learn that words mean a lot to me. And that doesn't mean I'm narcissistic or like, sel uh, what is it, selfish or whatever it is. But she knows that words matter to me and they help me and they encourage me and they're a way that she can intentionally show me love. So we've tried to study one another and learn those things. What works best? How can I build up my spouse? How can I love them? We enjoy cooking together and watching movies. We try and make love regularly. We try and apologize often when we hurt each other and let each other down and disappoint one another. We celebrate special occasions, like I spoke about our 10 year anniversary. It was so cool to be in San Diego, our new city, for our 10 year to make some memories here together. Yearly we try to go away on vacations and a bunch of other things like that. I think one of the things that was fun is something that I think we'll remember for the rest of our lives is during lockdown, South Africa had quite an intense lockdown. So Initially, it was like, hey, three weeks, we're just going to lock down, it'll be fine. Then five, then three months, we pretty much were locked in at home unless we needed to go to the grocery store or something. So after that time when we could go out, we would probably four or five nights a week go for a walk around our neighborhood. And our daughter August was in the stroller just gurgling, and it gave us time to talk and catch up and connect and just find a rhythm together and often pray just about what was going on. What was God doing? You know, how do we get through this? Just catch up and just bring things before God. It was a special new habit for us that we'll always remember that was unique to that time. And probably as I've shared all of the things I've said today, the reality is they're all very simple and maybe very obvious to you. None of those things are rocket science at all, which I think is a good thing. Because these simple, ordinary practices in our lives build a good, healthy marriage. When they're in place, there's a lot that happens that wouldn't without them. When they're not, our relationship hurts. And as you can imagine, as I share about those things, some of them happen every single day. 
Some of them happen once a week or maybe every couple of months or maybe they're yearly, whatever it is. But all of those different practices together are shaping the kind of ecosystem that we have in our relationship, which leads to what I think is a pretty good marriage most of the time. But I want to say this. We don't have a relationship because of those practices. We don't have a relationship because of them. I don't have to do those things to marry to shell. I am married to shell. That's our status, you know. But these practices are what is helping to build a healthy marriage, helping to build us up and strengthen us and connect us so that we see one another and stay focused on one another and remember each other. And on top of all of these things that we do that I've listed and spoken about, there's also a bunch of things that we need to stop doing to build that healthy marriage. Things that we do that like hurt one another and get in the way of all of those things that tear down rather than build up our relationships. So one of the things Shell's shown me recently after 10 years of marriage is that I often make passive aggressive comments to her. And I hate that. Like I, I don't want to be that guy, but I am that guy. And as she's pointed those things out to me, I felt really bummed with myself because I just thought, I didn't think I did that. It's like a complete blind spot to me, but I do. I do make passive aggressive comments to my wife. And I want to stop that. I need to cut that out of the way because that is hurting our communication. It's hurting our marriage. And there's probably a bunch of other things that come to your minds as I say that. Things in your lives, in, in your relationships, in your marriage, wh whatever friendships it might be. Things that you know in you, you need to stop because they're hurting relationship. We had a fight recently, and it had been one of those things where it had kind of been going for a while, you know? And we, we sat down and we talked it through, and it was a long conversation where we needed to talk through a bunch and clarify a bunch and listen to each other a bunch. And it was not nice, it wasn't fun, but I think what was really good about it is it gave us FaceTime. Like, we sat and we talked about things, and we apologized for things, and we repented of things, and we owned things. And we said, I want to stop some of those things, and I want to start some of those things that you're asking me to do. And as much as it was an unpleasant thing, it needed to happen. And amazingly, it brought intimacy and closeness and light. One of the things God has called in the scriptures is love. Another is light. And it was like light came, where, where there was sin that was going on. It was exposed and it was dealt with. Light came that actually helped us to see one another where we hadn't been seeing one another. And it wasn't that that apology, you know, that apology was necessary for us to turn and focus on one another and away from the other things that we had been turning to. A healthy relationship is built with both what we do and what we don't do, what we start and what we stop. So with all of that in mind, I want to ask you, what are some of the things that we can do to build a healthy relationship, strong and close with Jesus that will satisfy us? And what are some of the things that we need to stop? Or maybe another way to say it is, what are some of the things that s help us stay focused on Him or refocus on Him? And what are some of the things that hurt that? Now, sadly, there's no complete list in the Bible. That would be a great passage for today. I'd be like, guys, turn in your Bibles to here. We're going to work through it. But something you'll notice as you work your way through the Scriptures and become familiar with the Scriptures is that they're kind of dotted everywhere. So let's say as you're working through, you get to Exodus, and we see someone like Moses, who's a man of prayer. He's a man who listens to the voice of God. He's a man who fasts. Or if we go a little bit forward, we hit someone named Ezra. Ezra, who was a big Bible guy. 
Ezra who helped the nation of Israel to come back to the Word of God and to shape their community life around the Word of God. We move a little bit forward and we hit Jesus, goes into the desert for a time to seek God and be with God and find silence and solitude. I, I live in Mark chapter 1. Everyone wants Jesus' attention and he goes away to a place where they can't find him because he wants to be with God and get his priorities reset. And we see all of these things as we work through the scriptures, these different examples of practices that help us to know God and reset and refocus on him and build a relationship with him that is close. So probably the best list I can give you today, this is from Celebration of uh, Discipline by Richard Foster. It's a really great book on these things. I'm not saying his list is complete, but it's a helpful book. And I thought I'd mention some of these as elements that we can add to our lives that help us to put practices in place, that help us to put us in the presence of God, that we can see Jesus and be aware of him. So firstly, prayer. Prayer is life with God. It's conversation and listening and dependence on him interwoven throughout each day. And I don't know, like if you've grown up in the church, you've probably been taught to pray a certain way. One of the things that struck me over the last few years is that many of like the spiritual heroes or the characters you'd know in scripture had set times of prayer throughout the day. David kind of tops the list. In Psalm 119 verse 164, we see that David had seven times of set prayer throughout the day. Daniel 6 verse 10, Daniel had uh, three sets of set prayer throughout the day. The Jews of Jesus' day probably prayed two or three times a day, just kind of dotted in, breaking up their day. And Jesus probably would have done the same. And what I love about that is not a legalistic, rule-driven need to pray at certain times, but actually a, a weaving of prayer throughout each day. That it's not a, just a checkbox, cool, I've done my prayer, I'm done. But actually, I want to have an ongoing relationship with God throughout the day and be aware of Him and dependent on Him. That's prayer. Well, what about worship? Not just singing songs on Sunday, and it's so cool to have Scott here with us from Temecula leading us, and great songs. We got some at the end, which you might enjoy too. Great to sing together on Sunday. I know some of you enjoy a little Honda praise party during the week on your way to work or whatever it is. Just sing some songs that you love from church. But actually, the worship thing we're talking about here is not just about singing. It's not just about words but it's about a life that is aware of God and that's living to honor God and is thanking God throughout the day. What about scripture? I just thought I'd mention this. The, the reveal study happened a couple of years ago. And basically this study went to a thousand churches and 250,000 people with a questionnaire around what leads to spiritual vitality. And they said that the number one thing is personal reflection on scripture. That's what helped people grow the most. Or what about fasting, or feasting, or giving, or reflection, or community? Just prioritizing the gathering of God's people and the people of the church. Or Sabbath, or submission. That's probably a word in our culture which is quite challenging. Submitting to the authority of God's word. Submitting to God's ways. Or guidance. Listening to the Holy Spirit to find the will of God, and the wisdom of God, and the way of God as we go through our lives. Or simplicity. Psalm 73 verse 25, it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth is nothing I desire besides you. It's amazing. In heaven and on earth, all I want is Jesus. I think simplicity ties in so well with the series because it's really going against, it's a countercultural practice against the gospels of materialism and consumerism in our culture. 
say that we need more stuff. Simplicity says, if I have Jesus, I have all that I need. What about repentance or confession of sins to God and one another? All of these things that we can include in our lives, in our days, weeks, months, that help us to be in the presence of God, resetting to focus on Jesus. Now, like I've said, we don't have a relationship with God because of any of these things. We don't have a relationship with Him because of these practices. We've got a relationship because of Jesus. Basically, what I'm trying to say is these disciplines aren't a way for us to earn brownie points with God. Basically, these disciplines don't change whether God loves you or not. I love that fact. God will love you whether you do these things or not. You're a Christian whether you do these things or not. But if we want a deeper relationship with Him, these things take us into His presence to see His face. Just like that brekkie date that Shell and I have on a Monday morning, sitting with her in her presence, catching up, resetting, refocusing, speaking to one another, it helps us to find satisfaction in our relationship. Probably the quote that I'd love you to take away the most from this morning is by a guy named Jeremy Treat. He's a pastor from Reality LA, just up the road. And he says, the disciplines of the Christian life are less like boxes to be checked and more like a river that slowly carves a path in your soul. I don't know if you did geography at school, um, and I don't even know if the syllabus uh, would kind of work between South Africa and here, but I don't remember much of geography from grade 11 and 12, but I remember Oxbow Lakes. Do you guys know Oxbow Lakes? Oh, Paul Pham, big geography guy. Should see his bookshelf. Um, Basically, an oxbow lake is when a river is going along and it bumps into a hill or a mountain or like a steep incline. And the river just goes the path of least resistance, so it goes around that incline. But while it's doing that, it slowly erodes into that hill. It slowly erodes into that rock or whatever is in the way. And eventually what happens, maybe over thousands of years, is that river breaks through and that bend that had existed in the river before becomes an oxbow lake. It's just like a little shard of lake that is left and the river has gone all the way through. And what Jeremy Treat is trying to say is that these spiritual practices that we're talking about today are like that. They're not just a, a checkbox that we do. Okay, I prayed for the day. I've read my Bible for the day. Went to church. Now I can go do whatever I want. He's saying that actually all of these practices we're talking about leave an indent in our souls. They shape us and change us to be the kind of people we want to be that for the series' sake, are satisfied in Jesus and know and enjoy Him. Again, Shell and I don't do all of these things that I was speaking about earlier just to check boxes. We do these things because of the kind of marriage we want to have. We're not there, but we're wanting to get there. And we know that some of these things we're talking about are going to shape our souls, they're going to shape our marriage, they're going to shape our priorities to be aware of each other, to enjoy one another, and to be satisfied in one another. Now, I know that some of you in this room are sitting there going, oh, Grant, this feels like work. This feels like a lot of work, because it is. I had a friend back home that was part of Harbor City, and he said, I finish my work and come home to work. And what he meant is in his personal life, in his marriage with his kids, actually, he left his job where he worked hard, and he came home to work hard. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a great deal, does it? He's like, he comes home to work because his kids need his investment. His marriage does, his personal life does. If he doesn't, if he just takes his foot off the pedal, then the things that he wants to see aren't going to be happening. What I'm talking about today is work. What I'm talking about today is discipline. It's things that we're called to do even when we don't feel like it. 
even when the inspiration isn't there, or to use charismatic language, when we don't feel like the Spirit is moving us in that way, we do these things because we know they're going to shape us in a certain way. And I know some Christians get a little bit on edge when you use this kind of language. And I think even some of you could be sitting here going, I don't like what this guy's saying. This guy's off today, Ephesians chapter 2, saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grant, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I get that. I know what you're saying. You're worried that South African immigrant pastors coming here to preach heresy and legalism in the church. I get it. But Ephesians 2 says we're, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Actually, we are saved by works. It's just not ours. It's Jesus' works. It's Jesus' life. It's what he did. It's his death in our place for our sins. Yes, that saves us. Yes, that makes us right with God. Yes, that redeems us and brings us into a new relationship with him, not what we do. But Ephesians 2 carries on and it says we are saved for works. Not to keep God pleased with us, but actually works and purposes God has got for us to do. And that by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we are able to do for the glory of God and the benefit of those around us. We're saved for works, we're not saved by works. So yes, the Christian life involves work and effort and blood, sweat and tears for the glory of God. Not on our own. The Spirit is given to help us. Yes, in our building our relationship with God and as we build the community of the church and as we serve North Park and beyond. We're not on our own. We're empowered by the Spirit for the work that we're called to do. Just look at Philippians 3. I love this. There's a bunch of passages throughout the scriptures that point this out, but Philippians 3 is our text today. And in verse 7 and 8, Paul says, consider. Considering is an active thing. It's setting our minds to think in a certain way. I'm going to consider, reflect on, think about. Verse 10, my goal. Paul had a focus. He knew where he was going. He said it and he was heading in that direction. Verse 12, I make every effort. Speaks for itself. Verse 12 and 13, taking hold of. Verse 13, forgetting. Verse 13, reaching forward. Verse 14, pursuing. These are active words of effort on Paul's behalf to have a satisfying relationship with Jesus. Maybe we can look at one more passage before we close. This is Paul writing again to his son in the faith, Timothy. He's coaching him really as he pastors the church in Ephesus. And Paul gives him a different kind of language to what we see in Philippians 3, which complements our big idea today. In verse 7 to 10, it says, But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Every now and then I enjoy a little message translation just to kind of give it a bit of a fresh edge. But Eugene Peterson in the message writes it this way. Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. <laughs> I like that too. Spoke to me on a lot of levels. <laughs> what? Um, workout in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. Reading this, it feels so relevant to us being new to North Park and new to this area. Because as we've come in, we've been like trying to study the city and trying to see how it works. And one of the things we've been amazed at is how many signs we see and how many places we see for exercise and fitness. Is that true? 
Yeah, I can see this is a very toned, trim church. Well done. <laughs> and Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, that's good. Physical exercise, health, training, that's really good. But this passage isn't just championing a healthy lifestyle. Actually, Paul's also challenging our priorities a little bit. So would you be open to just look at what he says? Paul's saying that we should be paying more attention to spiritual health than we do to physical health. And he gives us a logical reason for that. He says it is the best return on investment. He says spiritual exercise benefits us in this life and eternally too. So Paul asks, are you training yourself for godliness? And that word train in the Greek, and Sharon was telling me she just watched my Big Fat Greek Wedding. I know some of you in the room watch that too. And there's a, little, there's a dad in that translating the Greek for the people. Basically, this word train in the Greek is where we get our English word gymnasium from, which is really interesting. You know, I think that's a really, really cool thing. And there's actually a bit of a reference in there to an athlete training for the Olympic Games. And that's interesting, like Paul in his day would have been aware of the Olympic Games. They happened every four years, they were happening in Greece. We don't know if Paul was ever there or around them at all, but it was something that was well known. What we do know is that Paul would have had a really close connection to kind of the second big deal athletic championship, the Isthmian Games that happened every second year in Corinth. It's one of the places Paul lived, it's one of the places he planted a church. And Gordon Fee says that Paul probably had been in Corinth for the 80-51 Isthmian Games and had probably been making tents for the visitors and contestants needing accommodation. If you didn't know this, Paul was a preacher and he was a tent maker. So that's quite an well, interesting fact for you today. But what Paul's trying to teach us here is he's drawing the spiritual parallel as someone who knows athletes and coaches and trainers and their training regimes and how hard they would work to compete in these games. Paul gets it. And he's drawing this parallel between the two to our spiritual lives. And he's calling us to train spiritually so that we might be satisfied in Jesus. I was like reluctant to do this, but I thought I'd share two Olympic athletes training routines with you today just to make you feel really bad about your lives. <laughs> Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time. You should actually go and see what he used to eat in a day, just like calorie or kilojoule wise, it's wild. But he won 23 golds and three silvers and two bronze medals. He started swimming competitively at age seven and didn't miss a morning practice from the age of 11 through 16 years old. I don't know what you were doing when you were at high school, I was not that disciplined or focused. He would even practice on his birthdays and on Christmas to keep his competitive edge because he knew he wanted to be the best and if he wanted to be the best, he needed to train daily. What about Katie Ledecky? She started swimming competitively at age six. She'd already qualified for the Olympic trials by eighth grade. She spent four to six hours each day in the pool, not including her land workouts, whatever she did out of the water, and her physical therapy. So they estimate that she had done 15,000 hours of practice, which for those of you who are big Malcolm Gladwell fans, kind of a big deal. She'd done 15,000 hours of practice heading into the Rio Olympics in 2016, where she broke multiple records and won four gold medals at the age of 19. Quite incredible. And the reason I feel reluctant to share that is because none of us here are these spiritual Olympic athletes. And I'm not trying to make any of us feel bad that we're not doing certain things, you know. In some ways, it would probably be better to compare us to everyday ordinary people who are training and just trying to stay fit and healthy and all of that. 
But Paul does want us to see the training of these athletes to win and compare that to the spiritual practices that we put in place in our lives so that we might be satisfied in Jesus. And I wanted to look at that example today for that reason. This matters. Training matters. These guys didn't win because of their DNA. Their DNA might have been great. They might have been born into a great family that helped set them up, really good situations so that they could win. You know, it could have been their genes, it could have been a whole bunch of other things, but, but really their training is what took them from being great to winning those medals. And Paul is saying the same thing here. If you want to be satisfied in Jesus, if you want to know and enjoy and have a deep relationship with God, it doesn't mean you have to be in the pool every morning, but it means there's certain things that we need to put in our place to train so that we can have that kind of relationship. That's what he wants us to know here. I just want to end by saying this. Just like going to the gym isn't the end goal, you know, unless you're wired very differently to me. (laughs) The end goal is being fit and healthy. It's not just going to the gym for the fun of it. Similarly, these practices and disciplines aren't our goal. (laughs) You know, as I speak about this today, I'm not hoping you take all 14 of Foster's things and you put them in your life so that we all do them. The goal is Jesus. The goal is knowing Him. The goal is being satisfied in Him. The goal is being shaped by all of these things so that in the distraction of our lives, as all of the messages come at us, as all of these things pull us in different directions, that we refocus and reset our gaze on Him and see Him. That's what we're talking about today. Can I ask you guys to stand with me? Scott and Dave, can I ask you guys to come up? Um, I wanted to leave you guys with one thing to do before we go into communion. I think a lot of the experts say that if you try and put a bunch of things in place in your life, you're going to fail. You're not going to do all of them. So I was just thinking, what, what for us is the one thing that we take away from today and do? If we want to keep our eyes on Jesus, what is the one thing we're going to do? And I want to say, if you're part of this church and you're new to following Jesus here, maybe the best thing to do is to start to have a devotional time in the mornings. Some of you may be CBR. If you don't know what that is, maybe you can chat to one of the leaders here. But to get up a little bit early in the morning, carve out some time to pray and read a portion of the scripture to think about what it means and what it's saying to you. If you've been around for a store for a while and you're saying, okay, well, I've got that. What else got? Maybe get the book that I mentioned today, Celebration of Discipline. Read through it. Pray it through. Just see if the Spirit is highlighting anything for you to add to your life. But my sense as I've prepared for today is that for most of us who've been following Jesus for any amount of time, this message just serves as a reminder. We know some of the things that we should be doing and aren't doing, or some of the things that we were doing and actually we've lost. And my hope is that today that the Spirit would even just bring to mind some of those things. You'd say, okay, God's speaking to me about doing that again, adding that to my life again. So Holy Spirit, I just welcome you here And I thank you for every person in this room, wherever they are in their relationship with you, however long they've been in this church, whatever they're going through right now. I ask you, Lord, that even now you would just highlight to them what you're wanting to say and do. I pray it would be so clear. I pray their next step would be so clear. I pray you'd confirm it. And I ask you, Lord, for each one of us, even this week, that we would see you, Jesus, that our gaze would stay on you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the kind of people that throughout the day are turning to you again and again 
are seeing you, are enjoying you, and are satisfied in you. We're going to take communion now before we sing. And this is actually an amazing practice of the church. It's something that shapes us as a people. It's, it's a moment to remember the gospel. It's a moment to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And I thought this is actually an amazing moment where we practice a few of the different spiritual disciplines or habits or practices. It's a moment of reflection where we look back over our week and think, actually, maybe there's some sin in my life that I need to bring before God and repent. It's a moment of confession as we pray to God and say, God, would you wash me clean of this? Would you empower me by your spirit to stop this? And as we come to celebrate Jesus and what he's done, to eat the bread and remember that his body was given in our place and that he shed his blood that he could wash us clean.